Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. I feel good. Dad, are you singing to your cereal? Come on, Ava. Silk almond milk. Starts the morning on a high note. (laughs) Silk almond milk. With calcium, vitamins A, D, and E. Feel plenty good. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. I hope you are safe and well wherever you are, and thank you so much for joining us today. I'm one of your co-hosts for this podcast, Shomana Xavier. Today we are joined by Dr. Jyoti Gulati Balachandran, who is an assistant professor of history at Pennsylvania State University, to discuss her new book, Narrative Past, The Making of a Muslim Community in Gujarat, circa 1400 to 1650. And it's been published by Oxford University Press in 2020. The book explores the complex power of Sufi text in creating Muslim communities in Gujarat from the 15th to the 17th centuries. Through a deep analysis of genealogical and biographical texts by Sufis, such as those of the Surawardi order, the study situates a social history of Gujarat. Balachandran focuses on three main Sufi saints, one being Ahmed Katu, whose disciples chronicled his life and legacy through various literary productions in Arabic and Persian. The complex processes of textual production and architectural development, such as Sufi shrines to these Sufi teachers in Gujarat, in Gujarat, showcases a vibrant and complex history of Islam, one that hinges on Gujarat sultans, Sufi sheikhs, local Muslim communities, and much more. The book provides significant insights into Gujarat Sultanate and Sufism and their relationship, while also further complicating the history of medieval and early modern South Asian history. This book will be of interest to those who think and write about Sufism, especially in South Asia, South Asian Islamic history, sacred spaces, and textual production, and much more. In our conversation today, Dr. Balachandran and I spoke about some of the challenges of completing a research, especially looking for um, archival material, the context of multi-glossic Gujarat, some of the diverse Sufi sources she engaged with and how to approach Sufi literature as not merely hagiographical sources, but um, as texts that provide us other uh, insights. The life and legacy of Ahmed Katu, um, Sufi shrine dedicated to him and other figures, sacred spaces and its relationship to sultans, and much more. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Jodi Gulati Balachandran about her new book, Narrative Past, The Making of a Muslim Community in Gujarat from 1400 to 1650. Hi Jodi, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you doing? Um, thanks, Rubna. Thanks for having me. I'm doing very well. How about you? I'm doing well. You know, it's it's the late summer and we're all, the pandemic um, is ongoing. So I'm, I'm grateful that you have given up some of your time to chat with us about um, a book that came out um, with Oxford University Press, Narrative Past, The Making of a Muslim Community in Gujarat, circa 1450 to 16, uh, sorry, 1400 to 1650. Um, we like to start our podcast um, to 
get to know the author a little bit. So I wonder if you could give us a sense of, you know, your own intellectual journey and perhaps what led to this particular project. Sure. Um, yeah, thanks, Shobna. And, you know, once again, you know, thanks for having having me here. It's, it's a pleasure. Um, you know, so a lot of my formative training, especially in terms of how to read Sufi texts and pose new questions to, 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 to such material, um, it took place in Delhi University, where well, I was a graduate student, and I was fortunate to have the late Sunil Kumar, a historian of the Delhi Sultanate, as my teacher and mentor. Um, Sunil's you know, highly nuanced work on the complexities undergirding the expansion of a Muslim community in North India in the 13th and 14th century was actually very influential for me in, in multiple ways. Uh, for example, in thinking about the possibilities of recovering historical change in Sufi texts that can sometimes read very synchronic and formulaic, um, or reading Sufi texts not simply as sites of religious and theological concerns, but also as uh, narratives that shaped how elite sections of the Muslim population related to and wrote about their past. Um, and also that these narratives are you know, very much in conversation with other Persian texts that are being produced at the court of the Delhi Sultans. And, you know, this was, you know, when I was a graduate student at Delhi University, it was also the time where, you know, the work of scholars like Simon Digby, Carl Ernst, you know, Richard Eaton, Niall Green and others had really shifted the way historians were thinking about Sufi texts and their collective work really brought uh, Sufi literature into mainstream historiography on the medieval and early modern South Asia. Um, so, you know, while I was doing my coursework as a graduate student uh, in Delhi University, I actually uh, went on to do, a, to do an MPhil where I had a first-hand experience of working very closely with a Sufi text uh, under Sunil's uh, supervision. Uh, this was a 14th century Tuskira or biographical compendium of Shishti Sufis and their disciples um, called the Seattle Aliyah. Um, and one of the key aspects of my research then had been to expand our understanding of the social ties that bound learned Muslim men um, in the 14th century. Uh, so, uh, you know, I showed in my ample dissertation that if we followed the structure of this text, such social ties are completely obscured um, as the author uh, privileged uh, the multi-generational ties between Chishli peers and their proliferating circle of spiritual successors. But once you start connecting these men, through all kinds of other details present in their biographies, you see how they're also related. Uh, uh, you know, they, they are related through family ties, matrimonial ties. Many studied together under the same teachers. Some were also friends and so on and so forth, right? So this aspect of recovering social history in Sufi texts, among you know, many other lessons I, that I learned through my research, uh, stayed with me as I pursued my PhD at UCLA. Um, um, under you know the guidance of Sanjay Subramaniam and and Nile Green, um, my focus in Gujarat though was was not really uh, you know planned in any in any in any way. Uh, it really emerged in part through the coursework I did at UCLA, where you know we often uh, talked about Gujarat's maritime context, uh, but very little in terms of what was happening in the region away from its coastline. So you know at some point uh, the question of What's the state of Sufi lineages and history in Gujarat became very central to my historical inquiry. So I knew a lot about Sufis in North India and the Deccan, but hardly anything in the context of Gujarat. I mean, I couldn't think of a single uh, you know, prominent Sufi from, uh, from medieval Gujarat. So that question then you know, guided me through my research uh, you know, as I collected several articles and you know, publications in Urdu, especially um, on Sufis like uh, Ahmad Khatu and his Saurabhardi contemporaries that I talk about in my book you know, from the 15th century and uh, eventually ended up locating a diverse set of Persian materials that were produced between the 15th and the 17th um, you know, centuries. So, uh, you know, so in many ways, you know, and uh, this was really this is this 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 really kind of was a defining uh, moment for for my uh, dissertation, and then I went on to further develop my ideas in in the book Narrative Past to try and write a broader history of state and community formation um, in fifteenth century Gujarat. Mm. It's so fascinating because I think this is probably one of the first books that I've read that had such a focus on Gujarat, which I, as I was reading, I was like, oh, I, I haven't had this history of um, Sufi kind of texts and spaces mm-hmm. and, and kind of readings of South Asian Sufism generally. So I've definitely appreciated this aspect of it. Um, 
Another aspect that I appreciated, which you kind of shared with us in terms of your own intellectual journey, is just your engagement with text are so rich and, um, and so textured that I just um, really loved it. Were there, you know, challenges for you methodologically? I know in your introduction, you kind of talked about how you were traveling and, you know, came upon some of these private um uh, you know, archives that people were able, willing and able to share with you. And that really kind of set the project forward. But I imagine it was kind of a daunting process to go and look for these texts, especially when you perhaps weren't quite sure how to look for them. So can you share with us some of that process and what the challenges and perhaps pleasant surprises were along the way? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is, uh, this is the fun part of research, right? The in unpredictability of what you're going to discover and, and also the kind of people you end up meeting while you're doing uh, field work. But as I just mentioned, right, a lot of it, um, uh, you know, I, and I have to say that a lot of credit for doing you know, some of the groundwork um, at, with respect to these 15th century Sufis and the kind of texts that they produced you know, was done by an earlier generation of scholars like, you know, um, uh, you know, B.A. Thermizi or um, Ziauddin Desai, um, though much of their publication was not really available outside of the Indian subcontinent. Uh, but I was led to uh, some, you know, archives in Gujarat really through their writings. Um, and once I knew uh, you know the the kind of you know places that actually are going to contain the are going to have the original you know Persian manuscripts that it really became a matter of you know going there and 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 talking to people working in the archives and trying to you know get uh, get copies of those manuscripts. So luckily in in Ahmedabad there is a Pir Muhammad Shah um, library. It's a shrine uh, libraries attached to the shrine of uh, of a Sufi, and they actually have a wide collection of uh, Manuscripts in Persian, Arabic, and also in Urdu and Gujarati, and and that that really became the primary site for me, uh, where I found a lot of these a uh, lot of these a lot of these texts that I that I talk about in my book. And you know, there is also this collaboration uh, between the the Shrine Library and the Iran Culture House in Delhi, where they're kind of digitizing many of these manuscripts. So, so that was really helpful. It's, kind of, it's the kind of, kind of information you, that you don't really find until you actually go there, right? Um, like, I'm sure it happens with, with many of us. So um, until I went to the Pima Shah Library, I had no idea that I could actually also go to the Iran Culture House and get digital copies of these texts. Um, you know, the other, the, you know, the other kind of more challenging aspect um, of doing of doing research was that, and I, as as you pointed out, I mentioned this in my book that there there are still manuscripts that continue to be uh, housed in private collections, um, and there are also other shrine libraries that have manuscripts, but they are not uh, easily accessible to to scholars for research. So at some point, I had to make a decision of how far I wanted to go, and I'm you know I I feel I've barely scratched the surface. There are a lot more. Um, uh, stuff that is out there uh, waiting to be uh, waiting to be explored, uh, but uh, on the flip side, uh, because of spending time in Gujarat, I was able to meet people who were really uh, excited uh, by the fact that I was interested in learning about uh, these 15th, 16th century Sufis, and you know, several of them actually were descendants of the Sufis that I talk about in the book. So they were very excited about my project. And then one of them actually, you know, opened his library to me, his private collection. And that was really a high point for me to actually go to Mangrol, which is kind of so far away from Ahmedabad. I remember going with my husband and, you know, I had an infant at that time. And, um, and, uh, and this person just kind of opened his house to my family and he took out all of these manuscripts that he had, he showed me uh, this long genealogical chart of Shajra, uh, and as well as other manuscripts that were, you know, sadly crumbling away. And he was very much involved in transcribing whatever he could uh, from these manuscripts, and also get them published and get them out there. So, so that, as I said, that was like a really. It was. It was. It was. You know, I, I don't. I. I don't think I still. Um, uh, I can claim that I have uh, the full knowledge of the, the full breadth of manuscripts that were produced in the period, um, you know, during the period that I'm working on. But, um, you know, but I, you know, through the generosity of several several people in Gujarat, I was able to 
uh, you know, gathered enough material that I could actually start thinking about some of the questions that I raised in my book. Mm, that's so fascinating. And yeah, the kind of the epithet, the introduction of the book starts with, with you going to this individual's house and him sharing the genealogical chart and placing himself in was like, mm-hmm. that's such a fascinating um like something as a reader I just was like so enthralled by and I think this really kind of gets at what you're doing in the book which is the the living reality of the text that you're you're engaging with which I think is so fascinating um so really appreciated that story um I wonder if we there's quite a few uh, aspects or moving pieces of the book and so I wonder if we could kind of tackle a few of them and then set up kind of the broader arguments that you're engaging with and I guess the first thing is kind of the the landscape of um of 15th, 16th, and towards the end of the book, 17th century Gujarat that you're dealing with. So can you, what should we readers or listeners know about um, the, the geography or the context into which um, you're engaging these texts and these Sufis? And that is of Gujarat. And perhaps also something about that, the multiglossic, and you're kind of alluding to it already, kind of the different linguistic traditions that are informing Muslim communities and kind of state relationships and these settlements that you're talking about. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So, um, you know, for for those listeners who are not familiar with the with the region of Gujarat, this is a region in the northwest part of the Indian subcontinent, um, along the coastline of the Arabian Sea. Um, and as I have an, you know, as I discussed discussed this quite a bit quite a bit in the introduction to my book, uh, I Gujarat is now a modern state in 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 modern India, right? So this is this is, but that's not that's not. Those are not the boundaries that I am looking at. That state in in modern India came into existence only in 1960. So, um, one of the things I want the listeners and the readers of my book to be aware is that, you know, as I look at uh, the region of Gujarat, the region is actually, you know, kind of historically um, defined. Right? It's, it's it's contingent. It's its definitions, its understandings are contingent. Uh, on the the time period that we're looking at, and also you know whose perspective that we we are privileging. So in my book, clearly, I'm privileging the perspective of Sufi masters and and their disciples who were writing in Gujarat between the 15th and the 17th um, century. But having said that, uh, there is this general idea by the 15th century that when one finds mention uh, mentions to uh, to the region of Gujarat that there is a political sense. In which Gujarat is understood, right? So this is kind of the political domain of uh, of uh, of the Gujarat Sultans who come to power in the 15th century in this region, and before them you had the Chalukyas who ruled, uh, you know, uh, in the in the same in the same geography. So there is this. So Gujarat is understood in those kind of uh, in, in that political sense, um, and. Uh, but again, if you were to look at the Sufi texts um, that I that I that I've, that I've worked on. Gujarat also appears as uh, a spiritual dominion. Uh, it's a dominion that is uh, led by the Sufis and their and their descendants. Um, uh, and as you know, as you kind of mentioned, the sort of multi-glossic uh, uh, kind of environment in Gujarat. Uh, you know, this is this is this is the time where you also see, very much like other other parts of the Indian subcontinent, an increasing uh, literary. Ver- uh, uh, Vernacularization, right? Where vernaculars are increasingly used as modes of literary expression. So in Gujarat, we, for example, see the literalization of Gujarati and and Gujri, uh, which is you know Gujarati inflected uh, Urdu. Um, and uh, of course, you also have languages like the Upper Bramsha and Sanskrit that have a much longer history of literary production in Gujarat. And then you have uh, you know Persian. And Arabic, um, the languages that I focus on in, in my book, uh, and even you know when you're looking at these Persian and Arabic texts being produced in in a 15th century, 16th century Gujarat, uh, you also see an increasing application of vernacular vocabulary in these texts, um, as well as you know, Sufi compositions in in Gujri uh, later on. So um, you know, so pretty much like you know the the religious landscape. Of Gujarat, where you have, you know, you know, Jain pilgrimage centers and Jain temples, and you know, you have the presence of, you know, the Ismaili community. You know, you have Sufis of different spiritual dispensation. Very, very much like the, the, this, this kind of religious sectarian landscape, you have a diversity of um, of, of languages and um, um, languages and, and texts in Gujarat as well. Um, so, you know, so this is kind of the larger uh, kind of the the. Kind of, if if I were to like situate Gujarat, um, you know, this, these are some of the things that I would 
I would highlight. And as we move into the late 16th and 17th century, one of the big changes that you see is, uh, of course, in relation to the political dispensation in the region. So the Gujarat Sultans come to power at the turn of the 15th century, but uh, pretty much by the middle of the 16th century, their, their, their power is on the decline. And um, in, the, in, the, in the last quarter of the 16th century, the Mughals take over and Gujarat becomes a province of the, of the Mughal Empire. So some of the texts, some of the Sufi texts that I'm looking at that are produced in the late 16th or the 17th century are already produced under, um, under this new political dispensation of the Mughal emperors in the region. And so perhaps we could talk about some of the Sufi literature and um, what kind of, you know, what kind of Sufi literature you are looking at. And you've already mentioned kind of uh, biographies as an example. Um, and what kind of questions are you asking when you're looking at those texts, you know, to consider a broader social history of this, this region that you've just described for us? Hmm. Yeah, so there is a, is, a, is a broad area of uh, Sufi literature. Right. Um, and again, one of the things that I point out to readers in my book is that I, I avoid using the term hagiography because when you when you look at these Sufi texts as hagiographical literature, it uh, obscures the considerable diversity and uh, authorial choices that lay behind the composition of each of these texts. So in my book, I uh, uh, I think most of my texts would be categorized as um, either malfuzat, which are these the collections of the public assemblies of Sufi sheikhs um, and uh, the Taskirat, or these are the biographical uh, compendium or biographical compendia that 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 you know again can be arranged in a variety of ways. So uh, you know some of the questions that I uh, you know going with this awareness that these texts that I'm looking at that each has in, in each of these texts the authors have made some very conscious decisions about what genre to write in. Because by the time you come to 15th century Gujarat, there's a long history of production, uh, of literary production by Sufi masters and their disciples in other places in South Asia. Right? So North India, the, the text that I alluded to earlier, uh, the Sierra which is written as a taskira of the Chishti Sufis and the disciples, you also have the Malfuzat text. So, you know, you see that their, their, their production in North India, you see them, you know, in the Deccan. So, uh, so as, as I was looking at these texts, I was like, you know, why are they you know, kind of, kind of, you know, putting my texts in conversations, if you like, with, uh, with, uh, with this larger history of Sufi texts in the Indian subcontinent, because my authors were clearly aware of the, of earlier texts that had been written in their genres, right? So why are they choosing to write uh, their, uh, their remembrances or their collections of the teachings of this of their Sufi masters and their their lives in a particular uh, particular genre. So that was like one of the questions. And then I think the other, as I moved, uh, you know, from the 15th to the 17th century, um, it also became clear to me that I need to put these texts in conversation with each other in Gujarat itself, because most of the texts that I look at uh, focus on the lives and teachings of. Three 15th century, three prominent 15th century Sufis. And so Ahmad Khatu is one, and then uh, to the two Sorabardis that I talk about, uh, Burhanuddin Abdullah and uh, Sirajuddin Muhammad uh, Shahiyana. Right. So, um, so you know what changes then in these texts as we move uh, from these earlier inscriptions of their lives in the in the in the, in the 15th century, you know, moving into the 17th century, and that was actually that in some ways really. Um, Kind of defined my my book because I was through that I was able to to uh, to show historical change to show how the decisions about what genre to write in enabled, for example, um, authors writing in the 17th century to synthesize material and theorize on who was important among their ancestors from the 15th century. So the genre of, of, of a biographical compendium was uh, was much you know was much more kind of desirable in in that way than uh, than just a collection of the you know the public assemblies of, uh, of of their ancestors so i think you know so so those were some of the ways in which i uh, kind of you know approached these Sufi Sufi texts and and kind of and and you know accounted for the considerable uh, diversity that existed in terms of their genre in terms of their narrative strategies and 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 really kind of um, thinking you know making it very central to how I read these Sufi texts. 
Yeah, it's it's so fascinating. And you've just modeled such an amazing way for us to really be sensitive to um, Sufi genre, but also like how to extract from them to understand broader context. I think, as you say, we often have a tendency to just quite blanketly approach them as hagiographical texts, but then we lose so much. And so it was really fascinating to see how you you modeled it for us. And so appreciative of that about this book. And um, as you mentioned, um, there are kind of three Sufi personalities that you engage with. Um, and I think um, Ahmed Katu kind of stands out as one of the prominent ones in the book. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we could get into to him first and kind of talk about what what it is that we learn, I mean, perhaps who he is first, and then maybe we could shift to talking about some of the ways that his disciples um, uh, kind of wrote about him and what that means, um, you know, both as a literary exercise, but also what what they were trying to do in terms of positioning his authority and spiritual domain after his passing. Yeah, thank you. No, that's Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I, I just kind of, I, I love the opportunity to talk about Anwar Kattu because that was really uh, such a fascinating figure for me. And uh, it was in part fascinating because I actually, when I went to Gujarat and I learned about his tomb shrine, I was just blown away. I was like, why don't we know about this Sufi more? <laughs> because yeah. his like tomb shrine complex, and I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about that later, but it was just, fabulous. I mean, it was just kind of so, uh, so huge, right? It was, it was a really, really large complex. And so it clearly, uh, uh, you know, told the visitor that this was somebody very, very prominent. Uh, that somebody spent a lot of money in in maintaining, in, in kind of you know building this up. Uh, but uh, but so who's who, who's Ahmed Khatu? Um, so you know, unfortunately, Ahmed Khatu is not like you know one of the kind of the more um, you know. Uh, you know, he he didn't he didn't belong to a very prestigious Sufi lineage. He's somebody. He's not like one of the Chishtis or the Sorabhatis who were extremely popular in South Asia um, in the in the medieval period. Um, he is, um, uh, and also you know, I should also preface that you know, of course, much of our understanding of who he is and you know what he did in his life really comes from these texts that his disciples wrote around the middle of the uh, around the middle of the 15th centuries. And, and these disciples, of course, spent a lot of time with them. But him, sorry, um, in, um, in in Gujarat. But you know, we uh, you know, so we know from these uh, texts that he is somebody who was actually born in Delhi to a family of military commanders, and um, uh, apparently there was a dust storm once in Delhi, and that you know he was a very young kid. He was basically he got lost in that storm. He was picked by a caravan of uh, of, of traders. Um, who were moving, uh, you know, between Delhi and and and, the, and Rajasthan, and uh, they so they took this young boy with them and brought him to a local Sufi uh, Baba's Hawk uh, in in uh, in a village called Khatu, which is in in, in northern uh, Rajasthan. You know, of course, the you know the disciples of Ahmed Khatu later embellished this account. Uh, you know, uh, as as one would expect to say that Baba's Hawk already had some kind of. Uh, uh, premonition that uh, that he was going to find a young boy who was going to become a great Sufi peep. Um, but um, but we know that then Ahmed Khatu grew under the under the tutelage of uh, Baba Ishaq, who belo- belonged to the Maghrabi Sufi. Maghrib, as the name suggests, uh, Maghribia, as the name suggests, is a Sufi uh, Sufi um, order that emerges in uh, in the Maghreb, Northwest um, Africa. But again, uh, as I mentioned earlier, unlike the Chishtis and the Sorabardis and other the Naqshbandis and the Qadris, who we know a lot about, we actually do not have much information on the Maghribi Silsila uh, in, in the Indian subcontinent. Um, uh, at some point in the, towards the late, uh, thir- I believe it's 1379 actually, uh, that Baba Ishaq passes and uh, Ahmed Khatu is really moved by his death and he uh, he decides to leave Khatu. Um, and uh, start his his travels, and uh, you know, once again, you know, uh, we don't know how much of the of the travel that is related by his disciples was actually taken by the Sufi. But um, you know, some of the important uh, stops were again, you know, Delhi, um, a city that he was very familiar with, because even when he was uh, with Baba Ishaq, he would often frequent Delhi and hang out with other Sufis and scholars in Delhi. And he, so we find him in Delhi actually at the time that uh, Temu's army is sacking Delhi towards the end of the you know, 14th century, 1390, 99. And there are these 
all these episodes that the disciples relate about how he was actually very helpful um, uh, to the prisoners, to the people who had been taken prisoners by the Timurian army. And you know, uh, at some point, the word reached to uh, Timur, who then you know, asked Baba Ishaq, uh, sorry, uh, Ahmed Khatu to accompany him to Samarkand. So then there's a whole set of travels that we that we are are uh, told about uh, in Central Asia. He's in Samarkand. Uh, he um, he you know you know go makes all his way down to to Mecca, and then finally at the turn of the 15th century, we find him back in uh, in Gujarat. Uh, he comes back, uh, and he is actually on his way to the Deccan. So he's again, you know, somebody who is uh, you know looking for patronage, looking to find a place to to uh, to you know finding finding a residence for for himself. And uh, and it is at this point uh, that we actually uh, there is a uh, kind of uh, he he ends up meeting with the uh, you know the, the Zafar Khan who would actually end up becoming the first um, um, sultan of the Gujarat Sultanate. And uh, it is here that Zafar Khan makes this request um, uh, to uh, Sheikh Hamad. And he's like, hey, you know, uh, why why are you going to the Deccan? Why don't you settle here in Gujarat? Find a nice spot and, and make your residence here. So already then we can see from this very point onward this kind of intersection between uh, between this kind of political authority and 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 somebody like Ahmed Khatu, who can really um, serve to legitimize the the set of uh, the, the the power of of Zafar Khan as he is trying to establish his independent authority in Gujarat. Um, so, you know, going back to the text and how they uh, relate the life of Ahmed Khatu, and then what happens once he settles down in this beautiful spot in in Sarkage by a pond. Um, we can clearly see that it, we cannot really talk about uh, the kind of uh, the, the formation of the state under the Gujarat sultans and the um, the kind of the uh, you know the establishment of Sufi Khanqas, the Sufi residences in Gujarat, as two separate uh, processes. That these are really conjoined processes. That what we see in the 15th century Gujarat from the very beginning is an understanding by these disciples that these are the formation of the state and the community and the Muslim community uh, spearheaded by the Sufis, these are actually conjoined uh, you know, processes. And so you find a variety of other examples where uh, where uh, Sheikh Ahmad Khatu and the you know other the subsequent sultans in Gujarat uh, you know maintained uh, maintained their relationship. There was of course conflict at times, but uh, but clearly you know we we see them as as collaborators, as especially in the, the way the narratives are defined, these are um, these are not kind of mutually exclusive um, um, kind of entities that are guiding the Muslim community. That they are working together in ensuring the expansion and uh, and, and uh, the prosperity of uh, the Muslim community in Gujarat. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer.
Okay, if we're going to recreate this old pic of us that mom posted, we've got to get the outfits right. Well, for some reason, I can't find gauchos with a matching shrug anywhere. Let me try on my Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. I just use the S Pen to circle the outfit in the post, and bam, five sites to buy it from right here. Shut up. How did you... You shut it. Mom's coming. Cute outfit. Get me one. <laughs> circle it, find it. With the new Galaxy S24 Ultra and circle the search with Google. Upgrade now at Samsung.com. Internet connection required. Results may vary based on visuals. It's so fascinating. And I think chapter three on sacred spaces, which I think we're both excited to talk about, <laughs> is the one that really gets at this, especially the relationship between the sultans and um, Amun Kutu and kind of the placement of um, Sufi tombs um, and kind of the sultans being entombed there. So can we talk a little bit about this really, really fascinating and expansive space and kind of the relationship between um, the textual production? And there's a, an amazing line you have in the book, and I wrote it down, it says the twin processes of textual production and physical enshrinement reinforced each other. And I think, the sh- you know, if we hear a little bit about the shrine space, we'll kind of get a sense of what you're describing in the text is also happening in kind of physical enshrinement. That's right. And, you know, in these processes, I have to say that they are kind of, they take place differently in, in, really in, in with regard to Ahmed Khattu and his sort of the contemporaries. In the case of Ahmed Khattu, there is you know, by the time it, it it appears, because it's very hard to date the two texts that his disciples wrote, um, um, except for the fact that you know, they're probably written soon after Ahmed Khattu's passing. But that textual commemoration in the case of Ahmed Khattu is kind of, is, is accompanied by the interests, by the Gujarat sultans in actually um, kind of enshrining his, um, his, his tomb as well. Um, and, you know, the, the, the shrine complex is, is, is important because it is the context in which the texts of Ahmed Khattu's disciples are, are likely narrated. Like they provide the physical space for the community to come together, not only seek blessings from the buried Sufis, but also you know, hear about his life and about his wisdom and about his, you know, about his um, uh, you know, about his travels and about his teachings. So in that sense, you know, it's kind of you know, texts really, you know, you know texts become important to the popularity of the shrine. And of course, the, the shrine reinforces uh, the need to have those texts. If you have this you know, beautiful shrine complex, people would want to know, who is this Sufi? What do we know about this? Right? So this kind of uh, reinforcement is very much at the heart of Ahmed Khattu's uh, uh, memorialization. Um, soon after, uh, soon after uh, he he passes, um, of course, as you as you know uh, from that chapter, one of the other reasons why Amakatu's tomb shrine is so uh, important is because uh, when you have um, uh, you know we, there there is this Gujarat Sultan Mahmud Begra, who then ruled from fourteen fifty eight to fifteen eleven, he is actually very instrumental in further expanding the tomb shrine of Amakatu, and he expands this not only by Adding several palatial structures to this complex, so we have, you know, if you go, you know, you 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 read about, oh, this used to be, you know, king's palace or queen's palace, and you still have actually a lot of those structures that have survived. You see all these like floors and and you know this huge lake around the site that has recently been revived. So there's finally water again in this in this lake. Uh, but you have palatial structures, but also uh, but also the presence of uh, royal funerary structures. And it really struck me because, you know, I was I always, you know, was like reminded of uh, Fatehpur Sikri, this kind of short-lived capital under the Mughal Emperor Akbar, where you have the tomb of Selim Chishti within the, the palatial compound in, in Fatehpur Sikri. But here I was looking at this tomb shrine, which is actually completely the other way around. It's the tomb shrine first. And then you have uh, these palatial structures that are built around the tomb shrine, and it was supposed to be kind of a, a summer retreat um, for for the sultans of Gujarat. And um, then, of course, as I, as I mentioned, the presence of royal funerary um, um, structures. So you have Mahmud Begra himself and um, two other Gujarat sultans and their wives that are buried in one section of this of this tomb complex. Um, so that you know, as you as you rightly pointed out, Shrovna, this was it was um, it was very clear. Uh, for me, both by reading the texts as well as actually uh, looking at how this tomb complex uh, was was constructed, that again, what we're looking at is 
this kind of uh, looking at this you know, the formation of the Sultanate and the Muslim community in the 15th century as really these kind of conjoined uh, processes um, that uh, and I, I think I relate uh, relate this in my book that oftentimes when I you know visited Ahmed Khatun's shrine you know, I would see other visitors who would you know, seek blessings from um, uh, from Ahmed Khatu and then they move on to the part where the Gujarat sultans are buried and they would go and pay their respects. And it's kind of very, uh, it's not very common to see somebody praying at the tombs of the, you know, of the, of the, of the sultans. But, uh, but again, so this idea that if you, if you, if you're thinking about Ahmed Khatu, the, you know, the, the, the sultans were very, uh, uh, they, they carefully uh, inscribed themselves in the way Ahmed Khatu would be remembered, whether, uh, you know, especially, especially, you know, whether you look at these texts or whether you look at the, this huge, shrine complex. Mm. And and you also mentioned in the book, as you're discussing this relationship between the sultans and um, Ahmed Katsu specifically, is how it so much contrasts what we perceive with the Shishti Sufis and their shrines of like a separation between, um, you know, the political leaders and the Sufis, right? And in that they, you know, there's a popular story of coming in through one, if the, I think Nizamuddin Aliya, if there's um, the emperor comes to one door, the Sufi leads to the back, right? Yes. And there is a contrast immediately of Ahmed Kutu. And you can see it in the pictures you have in the book is that the, you know, the sultans are buried night right next to him. And so Absolutely. It's fascinating. Right. Um, um, and so I feel like we could keep talking about spaces, you and I, but we should probably get to some mm-hmm. other aspects of the book. Um, chapters four and five shift and they focus on some uh, literary productions by Sirwardi disciples, um, and they're also shifting a little bit in time period too. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Chapter Four's goals or kind of what you're doing, which is really um, I found really fascinating. Is is what the establishment of um, uh, lineage or genealogy means for um, you know the particular community that you're engaging with, especially for the Sirwardi community um, and what they're doing with text in terms of constructing lineage. And um, some of it felt like that it was, um, I don't know if transnational is the right word, but they were trying to locate themselves in the Gujarati context um, and what it meant, the significance of that for community formation. But the building of networks and using kind of this um, um, process of building, you know, family tree or genealogy was very important. So can you say a little bit about what is happening here and why this kind of uh, literary production was important for the Sirwardi um, individuals that you're engaging? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Shobna. And, you know, again, it sort of reminds me of how much I enjoy connecting people, right? Uh, just finding these links and, you know, lineages and thinking about how they're connected with each other in multiple ways. Um, right. so thinking about the Surabhurdis, right, it actually, you know, goes back to what I, you know, what I said uh, a few minutes ago about, you know, putting texts produced in the 15th century in conversation with those produced in the 17th century. Because all these texts, in one way or the other, um, use Ahmad Khatu and his two 15th century Sauravardi, you know, contemporaries as their as their focus. Uh, but it, you know what you what and so one of the things that you see and something that I in kind of detail in in, in the fourth chapter is that um, these texts that are written at this later point, um, kind of lineage really becomes a central kind of organizing theme. For, for these texts. And it's for a variety of reasons. You know, first of all, you actually have the kind of historical depth now um, in Gujarat um, that, that your the you know the, the ancestors of these descendants who are uh, writing these texts you know did not. They had just arrived in Gujarat and the literary production was not of, uh, of, uh, of the kind that could talk about their long-term association with Gujarat. Right. So what you see in the 17th century text is that becomes that becomes possible now. It becomes possible to trace a lineage, um, also assert uh, uh, assert its regional um, uh, aspect that this is you know the ancestors come to Gujarat that these are uh, Sufis of Gujarat, and to also then uh, show how uh, these Sufis who really in these texts appears appear as leaders. Of an expanding Muslim community, um, they, uh, you know, you can, you can, you can actually now uh, in these texts trace that expansion because you know multiple family members, multiple, uh, I guess, generations of descendants who have 
gone on to, you know, marry into other families, other learned families. Uh, many of them have often left Ahmedabad and moved to other cities in Gujarat. So, uh, so you know, so one of the things I'm trying to accomplish at the fourth chapter is by kind of, uh, you know, looking at these images and uh, and be able to actually show uh, how this kind of community of, you know, elite Sufis and their descendants um, expands over the course of, you know, uh, the 15th and the 16th century, which is hard to do um, in, in, the, in the 15th century. But these texts are also important, uh, you know, in, in relation to what we find on Ahmed Khatu, right? Because as I said, these... Um, the two uh, Sauravardis, Burhanuddin um, um, Abdullah and Sirajuddin Muhammad, who actually at some point are also uh, students of uh, Ahmad Khattu, uh, they, you know, they, uh, you know, unlike unlike Ahmad Khattu, they had families, right? So we have the descendants who also served as the spiritual successors of their ancestors, um, and uh, so. So you know, Ahmed Khatu never uh, never married, never had uh, had uh, had a son who who could be his spiritual you know successor. So his kind of lineage, when you had the tomb shrine and the text, but there was not an ongoing. Uh, that was not there was not a you know that was not like a continuing spiritual lineage that we can trace. Um, so in 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 the case of the Sorabardi, there is a much a much greater investment. Um, on the part of Swaravati descendants in the upkeep of the tomb shrines of their 15th century ancestors, and also then in the production of texts that would talk about the uh, the significance of their 15th century ancestors. And so what you see in the 17th century is something I call like the second narrative moment. The first is in the middle of the 15th century, where you see mostly texts dedicated to Amit not so much on the Sauravardis. We have, you know, we have some references, but you know, we don't really know the extent of that uh, production, literary production. But suddenly, in the in the late 16th and the early 17th century, there are a variety of texts that some of the descendants of the Sauravardis um, uh, start uh, start start writing. And as they write, um, um, it's you know they have to account for the presence of a very very important. Um, you know, contemporary of their 15th century ancestors. How do you account for the prominence that Sheikh Ahmed Kantu continued to enjoy in many of the narratives, especially like Mughal biographical compendia that are written in the 16th century, uh, 17th century, where you find very little detail on the Suravartis, 15th century Suravartis, but you find a lot of detail on Ahmed Khatu. And so clearly these later Mughal biographers are relying on uh, Ahmed Khatu's 15th century uh, texts. So it's, it's almost like there is, there is this kind of lacuna, right? There's like, there's like not, there's not much out uh, on the Suravardis, 15th century Suravardis. And so you have, a, you know, a couple of very prominent uh, you know, scholars and Sufis uh, who are descendants of Sirajuddin Muhammad and Burhanuddin Abdullah who write a variety of, variety of texts and try to account for um, um, for Ahmed Khatu's you know, popularity vis-a-vis their own ancestors. And so this is a theme that I pick up that, you know, as we think about Sufi lineages in Gujarat, you can see a sense of competition also, right? That there, that there is this um, need to uh, kind of, you know, and for, uh, you know, for, for, for good reason to kind of really present one's own ancestor in a much more kind of superior spiritual uh, spiritual light. Um, you know, the Sonavadi descendants are also, um, as I pointed out earlier, are working in a, in, a, in, in a context where the Mughal emperors are around and Mughal emperors are uh, capable of, and they do um, continue to offer patronage and, and land grants and other kinds of forms of respect to these Sonavadi descendants. So, um, so as I'm sort of thinking about uh, how these texts are relating Amakatu's memory in their own remembrances of their ancestors, um, I kind of look at, uh, you know, look look very closely on these, these two Suravardi's te- uh, texts in my fifth chapter to kind of understand what kind of changes or what kind of omissions or additions the Suravardi descendants made to their memory of their ancestors to account for Ahmed Khatu's popularity. And in these accounts, uh, Ahmed Khatu's, you know, authority is certainly not diminished 
uh, by, by any account. You know, he's still recognized as a very prominent Sufi and a learned person. Uh, but it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's subsumed within the, uh, the, the, the more prominent, the more illustrious lineage of, of the Surabhati. So the, 15, the, the, the fifth chapter is really about kind of, kind of showing, uh, again, how uh, we really need to put these texts in conversation with one another. So, you know, the text that one Suravardi wrote where he narrated 40 episodes from Sirajuddin Muhammad's life, uh, we need to put that in co- in context with, you know, Sadhikaya, where you know, have like 100 episodes written by another descendant. And so, and that these, these are not just kind of additions of more episodes, that they are trying to achieve something. They're trying to put to rest any, any kind of thoughts that people might have about, you know, who actually is more important and who actually was more central to the flourishing of the Muslim community in Gujarat, Ahmad Kadu or the Sorabardis. And yeah, your discussion of Saad Hikayat in chapter five is just so fascinating for this reason, because you could see how the author of the text is recasting authority and kind of looking at um, kind of, I guess, preserving the spiritual legacy of um, Ahmad Kadu, especially because he doesn't have descendants. And in this way, I think one of the themes that you kind of talk about throughout the book is this idea of memory. And it seems that all of these kind of the text to space and kind of the establishment of lineage is really trying to um, preserve memory. And it's, it's interesting, as you were just speaking, it sparked this idea that, you know, um, family descendants are part of that memory. And so what happens when Ahmed Kutu doesn't have that element of memorialization for him? How does the text do other work? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's kind of, yeah, that actually... Um, but but you know the the the, the, you know, the interesting thing here though is that you know despite uh, despite not having any uh, clear spiritual successors or descendants right I mean it is really Amakatu uh, that receives a much more space in later biographical uh, you know biographical compendia that are like really kind of subcontinental in their framework so they're looking at different regions of the Indian subcontinent you know like you know Abdul Haq Safar Lakhyar. You look at that, right? He's talking about all of you know, you know, different different parts of uh, the Indian subcontinent, and you have this kind of really long um, uh, narration of Anasattu's life, and there's hardly anything um, on on his contemporaries or over these. So it's kind of a little bit of like irony there, right? Exactly, exactly. That's really fascinating. I'm, I mean, what is his legacy today? You kind of talk about this in the conclusion, what's happening with the Amankatu's shrine space and has become very touristic and popularized. But I mean, what is the legacy of him or perhaps even the other Surawardi um, teachers that you're engaging with? Well, it's like, you know, in, uh, it's, uh, I would say it's like a legacy that's, that's, you know, it's kind of, it can be considered a conflicted legacy, like depending on what you talk to. Uh, but in terms of, I mean, for, for a long, long, I mean, if you look at um, a colonial records, right, where they, um, have, where they talk about the state of different monuments, you know, in Gujarat, um, you would find references to, you know, how much money they were, uh, they were spending for the upkeep of this shrine, of Amitkatu's shrine complex, or just kind of, you know, uh, giving descriptions of how uh, it was in a, you know, you know, it was kind of deteriorating. So, and you know, so for a long period of time, um, you know, in the you know in the you know, 18th, 19th, um, you know, large part of the 20th century, this was kind of it was really a neglected site. And also, it, is, it also has to do with how the the geography in the region sort of developed, where um, the, this village of Khatu became more and more disconnected from the the old historic, you know, Hemdabad. Um, it was like harder to get to and all of that uh, but then there was like a highway put there and so it was it became way more accessible and then uh, there's like a local NGO that with the help of the ASI then sort of really focused on reviving because you know as I said it's it's a it's an enormous enormous site it's kind of hard to miss so uh, there was considerable interest from this uh, from this NGO to um, to not only kind of revive the the, the, the structures, just clear clear up the shrine complex, you know, get water back into the lake, um, but also involve the local community in um, in kind of preserving uh, preserving this structure. But because it's not um, again, it's very different from the tomb shrines of the Soravardis, right? Because they are um, very much they have remained uh, in part because there has there was there's always been a clear 
line of spiritual succession, which is also a line of family descendants. Those sites have uh, remained very important sites of pilgrimage for people to to visit, uh, and I, I don't think that really changed um, changed much. And you know, you have even you know, um, I think I talk about the Jahangir Nama, where the Emperor uh, Jahangir talks about his visit to Ahmedabad, and you know, while he goes and sees Ahmedkartu's shrine, he actually is able to meet the descendants of the Sorabadi Sufis that are buried in. In the other three shrines, right? So that again, that element of having descendants, a clear line of descendants, really shaped the way um, in which these tomb shrines, um, tomb shrines, like developed. Um, and so now, um, with all of the efforts um, of these of this of this NGO, um, yeah, it's it be, it's become a it's you know you, you look at brochures, um, you know, in Ahmedabad and say, hey, don't miss going to you know Sarkeesh, you you find some kind of peace and quiet. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, from all of the kind of the hustle and bustle of like Ahmedabad. Um, right. So it's, um, so it's, you know, now there's like a, you know, a, there's a Rosa committee, they have built a, a small kind of library. Um, but people really kind of, you know, and they, you know, and, and, you know, over the years, you've had all kinds of concerts. Um, people claim that there was one time where the, the Hindu festival of Janmashtami, you know, was celebrated in this tomb complex, kind of reviving this memory of this, uh, you know, again, Sufi is somebody who catered to all sections of the, of the population. Um, uh, and, um, you know, so it's become a, 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 a tourist site, which is very different from the experience of visiting the Sauravadi tomb shrines, because they're just like, you know, many of the other shrines in, in, in South Asia, where there's a constant flow of people, um, you know, coming and seeking, you know, uh, blessings. Um, and, and so they're, they've kind of continued to be very much um, a part of the, of the community uh, that, that, that sort of, you know, so when I visit, you know, I, I visit Ahmed Kattu's tomb as a tourist, really, but right. when I'm visiting the other tomb, I don't, I'm like, hmm, I'm not a tourist. I'm like, just like, all these people coming there, it's kind of a pilgrimage site, um, you know, more than uh, more than anything else. So, um, you know, uh, so it's, you know, again, as I said, it's, um, um, you know, one way or the other, I think, the, thinking about the legacy, right? I mean, again, the, the continued presence of these two shrines, despite their different trajectory, again, um, is, a, is a very good reminder of the importance of these Sufis you know, in Gujarat, in kind of defining the uh, defining the, the sort of the regional kind of landscape and, and the and the sacred um, sec- sacred landscape in in Gujarat. I mean, you, you cannot just kind of wish them away. They're very much there, and they continue to be important. That's mm, so fascinating. Um, as we wrap up and taking a kind of a step back from all the wonderful details we've been talking about, what would you want um, our listeners or readers who are going to pick up your book to really take away as the broader what aims or interventions that your project is making? Um, you know, there, um, uh, you know, there are at least a couple of things, right? I mean, again, uh, you know, again, thinking about how I got to really think about Gujarat as the focus of my research, right? So that a lot of, you know, a lot of what we hear about Gujarat is oriented towards its, its maritime context, its relationships to other places across the Western Indian Ocean. Uh, and that is certainly very, very important. In fact, those kinds of connections um, uh, were important for bringing our idea of Sufis and other learned uh, Muslim men to Gujarat in the first place. And we know that the Gujarat Sultans clearly paid attention to uh, to the port cities that brought a lot of trade into the region, and they also harbored links with uh, with with Mecca. Um, so I guess one of the interventions that I you know that I'm hoping to make through this book is that you know that that's while that's important, that's also Make sure that we understand that uh, a lot of that's happening uh, in Gujarat is also connected to the historical processes, the narrative processes that are shaping the past and the identity of Muslim communities in other parts of the of the Indian Indian subcontinent. So um, um, you know, so uh, so again, if you want to understand the you know, the role and reception of Sufi texts that are produced in Gujarat, we really need to put them in conversation with this much longer history of the production of these materials uh, in North India and the Deccan and how in, it was in these texts that a certain kind of texted past um, uh, was, was being created by, by a variety of uh, authors. Um, but, you know, 
I guess the other uh, other important um, question that I hope I um, I'm, I'm able to provide some answer to is is about you know how, what do we mean when we say what is the history of the Muslim community in Gujarat? And more often than not, um, we start talking about the sultans, right? We talk about the military conquest of Gujarat sultans, and that so this kind of equation uh, that. Uh, that the history of the Muslim community equates the rise of quote-unquote Muslim power in Gujarat. I, I am I am trying to kind of dislodge that a little bit because um, uh, I think that there were alternate contemporary ways of um, of giving a composite identity to the history of the Muslim community in Gujarat. Right. So for example, the ones that I recover in in Sufi in Sufi texts. Um, and, and also that these alternate ways of giving historical debt to the Muslim community were not necessarily mutually exclusive to the manner in which the sultans were representing their role in the expansion and flourishing of a regional Muslim community. So, uh, as I've said before, right, I mean, really looking at the 15th century as very much um, uh, in the, the, the state and community formation are very much conjoined processes, and that reading texts produced both in the court of the Gujarat Sultans and in the Sufi Khankas kind of reinforces um, uh, the importance of uh, this the conjoined uh, process. Um, and I guess, you know, if I were to like, you know, add add maybe one more thing, um, uh, and that is, of course, the you know the idea of like a regional community and a regional you know history. Uh, and I was just thinking about the role of narrative texts in 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 place making and in region making. Um, uh, you know how these texts that I look at, uh, especially the ones that are produced you know, later in the late 16th and 17th centuries, are able to very clearly express. Uh, this deep attachment to the idea and geography of Gujarat. So, you know, there's this sort of this place making and region making in, in these texts is, is inseparable from the ways in which the authors are constructing their, their past and narrating their past in these texts. So, um, you know, and, and then, you know, that, that's you know, one of the reasons why I have narrative pasts um, in, in the title of the book, uh, because these kind of narratives are really. Um, kind of uh, the aspect of the narrative expression um, in a variety of texts is really central to how we understand region making, um, uh, you know, and, and also, um, uh, you know, re- regional kind of identity uh, making in the 15th century. Fascinating. You've definitely given us a lot to, to think about and sit with. Um, as we are concluding our conversation, I wonder, um, I know I want to recognize that we're in kind of an intense global moment and you've also just published a book and so hopefully hopefully you're sitting with that and honoring that and celebrating that um, but I imagine that this book has probably left you with new questions or brought new projects to mind and is there something that you're working on or you're, you're thinking about um, hoping that your next project could be? Yeah no it's you know as it as it turns out I'm actually um you know, kind of reorienting towards the Western Indian Ocean again, uh, myself. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, so much for talking about Gujarat being connected to, you know, these larger <laughs> you know, processes. Uh, I'm actually kind of kind of looking towards the Western Indian Ocean again. Um, and, um, you know, there are, I, I guess I'm trying to kind of, uh, uh, in my next project, try to kind of focus more on Arabic uh, narrative text. You know, my book is largely based on, uh, Persian text, a little bit of Arabic text, but uh, there are some significant um, texts that are produced in Arabic in Gujarat and um, in um, in Mecca by uh, by people who moved from Gujarat and settled in settled in Mecca. So I am um, kind of very interested in uh, 16th century, um, you know, figure uh, of uh, Qutbuddin Muhammad and Mehrabali, who's kind of a very important um, important uh, kind of religious scholars who gains a lot of reputation in Mecca after moving from. Uh, from uh, Nehrawala or Patan in North Gujarat, um, and you know he's written a variety of you know Arabic texts and all of you know and and then you know you also have his contemporaries. We have somebody like you know Ulukhani who has written and I talk about that text in my book. I was written Arabic history of Gujarat. You have uh, members of the prominent either Rusi Sultana who are in Gujarat and you know they are also writing in Arabic. So kind of thinking about um, the, uh, the the scholarly connections. Um, in, in 16th century between Gujarat and kind of the Red Sea region in a way that I can actually really kind of, uh, you know, put, put these texts produced in, diff- in different 
uh, on different sides of the West Indian Ocean world in in connection in in kind of in in, in you know kind of connect them and kind of bring them in into conversation with with one another. But you know the project is still at its very infancy, so I have no idea how it's going to shape up. But but uh, but I'm pretty certain about as I said about my orientation towards the West Indian Ocean for my next project. Well, that's exciting. It's always exciting when the project is just starting and it's like um, fun to think about the possibilities. Um, so I wish you all the best with that. And again, thank you so much, Odi, for joining us and to talking about your book. Um, I appreciate your time and congratulations again on a fantastic book. Thank you so much, Robna. And I really appreciate uh, you giving me this opportunity to uh, talk, about my, talk about my work. Thanks for reading it and thanks for all your questions. And uh, yeah, I just, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Me too. Thank you. And that was my conversation with Jodi Gulati Balachandran about narrative past, the making of a Muslim community in Gujarat, circa 1400 to 1650, which is published by Oxford University Press. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, stay well and take good care. today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.